on which another 1.4% of GDP is spent. What is the purpose of uh, telling about all these calculations? That is getting clearer, I hope to many of you. Somewhere, surveys criticizing all these subsidies or schemes, etc. And, and uh, the, the reason behind criticism is, is primarily that can we remove these poorly targeted subsidies or government schemes and save money? I hope you can see that if you add all these numbers, okay, that will give us around 4 to 5% of GDP. So, survey was trying to say, can we remove these poorly targeted subsidies or government schemes and save money to finance UBA? Okay, uh, you have freedom to support or go against it. Uh, but I would say this is too simplistic way of putting UBA. Removing all these subsidies is not as easy as the survey is often uh, referring to or advising about. Okay, because it, it, uh, it is impacting so many households in our country. Food subsidy is uh, including PDS. PDS is benefiting so many households in the country. Fertilizer subsidy, millions of farmers are getting that. MG Narega, we have seen, uh, is, is having uh, impact on the, the poverty reduction in, in rural areas particularly. So it is too simplistic to just remove these subsidies and bring UBA. Even if it is done, okay, suppose in, in one case that UBA is brought in, UBA will have to answer uh, the question whether they will give all the benefits which these subsidies or schemes have given. For example, in MG Narega, we have seen it has not just reduced poverty, has led to multi multiple social political benefits, social particularly. Now, will UBA bring all these uh, positive social benefits? Uh, we are not taking a judgment, maybe. Okay, but then we need to analyze that. There, there is a, a pre-analysis which is very important. Whether UBI will bring all the socio-economic benefits which the other subsidies have uh, or schemes have taken care of. Okay. Otherwise, it's better not to remove them and bring UBA. Okay. So things are open-ended. I'm not giving you any uh, answer correct or incorrect. Okay. You should know that the things are open-ended. One thing which seems very probable is that without removing some important social welfare scheme, it seems practically difficult to uh, bring UBA at least a true UBI which is nearly universal. Otherwise, we have uh, some in part UBA which is already coming in. I'll, I'll come to that also. Secondly, UBI, we are done with the challenges, etc. I'm, I'm just going on to some other concluding remarks. UBI is being given as a solution to poverty. Okay, so the claim is that uh, it will solve poverty. But then, don't forget that poverty itself is changing in definition. As we did in our earlier classes that poverty is not just about lack of income, but lack of education, health care, basic amenities or basic services like drinking water facility, electricity, etc. So whenever UBI is given as a solution to poverty, it will also have to answer that whether it will solve this type of poverty or not. Again, not being judgmental, 
uh, in some pilot project on UBI, I must have told you that. In some pilot projects of UBI, we are actually finding UBI being spent on education or healthcare. Okay, so that supports UBI in a way that we have seen UBI being used on education health purposes in some pilot projects. But having said that, it is too simplistic again to believe that UBI will bring basic amenities. Okay, it is too simplistic to believe that UBI will bring drinking water facility to a village or electricity or sanitation facility. Okay, it's very logical. You don't need to uh, be, be an expert in uh, that for that matter. The idea is that basic amenities or basic services need bigger investments. Okay, basic services need bigger investments. Okay, they are not just possible by giving a minimum income. Okay, I hope uh, you are following the argument. So, one uh, debate on UBI or one viewpoint on UBI is, before UBI, <coughs> let's talk about universal basic amenities. Okay, newspapers have talked a lot about it. Okay, that before universal basic income, Let's ensure universal basic amenities or universal basic services. Okay, after all, most of the developed countries where we have seen UBI implementation, okay, they have gone for UBI only after taking care of the basic amenities. Okay, so perhaps that is a better way for India also to go about. And just to conclude with one last uh, uh, debate here, how universal? Okay, we said that UBI will be near universal. But how do we define near universal? Who will be included? Who will be excluded? There is no exact answer to that. Still, there are two, three proposals which are there. Okay, let me discuss quickly. One proposal is that in near universal, we can pass on UBI to the farmers. Okay, uh, something like PM Kisan uh, is, is proposing. But then remember, PM Kisan is also nowhere universal. Even for farmers, it is nowhere universal. As you know that it is only for small and marginal farmers. Okay, which, which excludes many, many farmers, tenants, landless, laborers, etc. Okay, if UBA is to be implemented at first, I think that can be a good uh, choice. That let's give it to farmers, but unlike PM Kisan, we should be giving it to the larger section of farmers, perhaps excluding a kind of a creamy layer. Okay, so maybe some creamy layer, very, very rich farmers, clearly, who have very large land holding size maybe. Okay, excluding them, it should be a true universal income being given to farmers. That is all the more justified because other policies in agriculture have somehow not worked. We are going to talk about some of them. And you must have done some of them in geography as well. Okay. The other proposal has been in near UBI, that was economic survey uh, also somewhere talking of, that we can have UBI first for women. Okay. So UBI in the women's bank account first, uh, perhaps on the uh, presumption that the, the uh, women have used the income more productively. Okay. I would say this is too simplistic again. Okay, given the socio-cultural uh, situation in our country, okay, just giving UBI to women 
is, is not going to solve the problem. Uh, because most of these women will not be able to spend it the way they want to. Suppose that is also on the presumption that all women are using it for productive purposes only. It is, <laughs> it is, it is very, very simplistic to claim that uh, in a family, women, women will give, get freedom to use it the way that they want to use. Okay, you will say, aren't we contradicting what we did in MG Narega? No, we are not. Let me tell you the difference between two. In MG Narega, when we said that women are getting wages for the first time, etc., that is where they were working and earning wages. Okay, working outside home on some project and earning wages is very different from getting an unconditional transfer in the bank account. Okay, so views may differ, but if you tell me to choose between MG Narega and women based UBI, I will say any day MG Narega is going to be better. Okay. Because when women go outside home, work, earn wages, that's not just about money which they earn, that's about bargaining power which they get in their own family. Okay, that better bargaining power helps them to use the money that they want to. Okay, like we have seen in case of MG Narega. Okay, so it, it seems to be a little simplistic that just transferring that money in the women's bank account will be uh, okay. So, in summary, UBI seems to be less practical at this point of time. Okay, uh, simply because even if we uh, excuse all other problems, where will money for it come is a, is a big issue. Okay, no supporter has clearly said that how are we going to tackle the fiscal burden without removing other crucial schemes. Okay, without removing other crucial schemes like PDS, MG, Narega, how are we going to bring money for it? There is no straight answer to that question so far. Okay, even if we want to go for it, okay, I think it would be a good idea to uh, pass it on to the parents. But let's pass it on in a near universal manner rather than uh, just to a small section of farmers and that to a very small amount of money. Okay, which, which hardly serves the purpose for the farmers. Okay, so I think that is where I'll stop. Okay, uh, it's, it's an open-ended debate. Keep on reading more on that from the newspapers. Okay, and uh, if a question comes, in general, try to have a more balanced view. Okay, uh, depending upon the nature of the question, no one can predict what you may be expected to uh, be, be asked. Okay, if I'm clear on this, we uh, move to our next topic. Okay, this is all on poverty. And we are now uh, moving to our topic on agriculture. So, agriculture we have done in geography as well. Therefore, uh, I will deliberately be leaving certain parts, uh, all the more with some lack of time. Okay and focusing more on those parts which you have perhaps not done. But before taking up top, uh, main sections of agriculture, I have a few brief sections which are more or less as an introduction to the topic. Okay, now the first brief uh, introduction is about importance of agriculture in India. Why, after all, agriculture is an important sector in India? And interestingly, this question is not asked to industries okay, or services. 
that why industries are important. That, that is a question generally put before agriculture, you know why. Because their GDP share is lowest. Okay, with just about 14-15% of GDP coming from agriculture, very often it is asked that why do you care about a sector which is just 14-15% contributory to GDP. Let me answer the, the question first. Many reasons are there. And for uh, a number of factors, we are looking into a link. The link is, when there is higher agricultural growth or higher agricultural GDP growth, it is one of the preconditions of higher rural income. Remember, uh, I'm not telling that this is a guaranteed relationship. Okay, uh, even if it is not a guaranteed relationship, higher rural income is difficult to achieve without better agricultural growth. Okay, or let me reword it this way. For higher rural income, higher agricultural growth is a necessary even if not a sufficient condition. Okay, for higher rural income, higher agricultural growth is a necessary, even if not a sufficient condition. What are sufficient conditions? That you may have done something in geography also, like agricultural marketing policy. Can you see that if agricultural marketing policies are good, then this growth will easily be converted to income. If farmers can sell their uh, goods, sell their produce at good prices in APMC Mondays, okay, then they can get easily higher rural income. Or if they are getting good MSP from the uh, government, they can convert that growth into income. You are aware of agricultural marketing, etc. Okay, so um, we'll talk of MSP, however, in, in separate details. If it leads to higher rural income, then it can bring many benefits to economy. Let me one by one tell you about it. The most direct benefit is lower rural poverty. Okay, higher the rural income, lower will be the rural poverty. Nothing much to explain, I hope. What is also important is, when rural income is uh, going up regularly, We have seen controlled rural-urban migration. Okay, so I just wanted to say that although rural-urban migration is good for economy, it is good when it is controlled. Uncontrolled rural-urban migration uh, can create problems. Okay, uh, like they can lead to urban poverty. Okay, so just wanted to tell you that there are many urban poor who are outgrowth of rural poor. During drought years, you will see uncontrolled rural-urban migration, leading to increasing number of urban poor. If higher rural income keeps the controlled rural-urban migration, it can also keep urban poverty so, the summary of uh, this argument is that agriculture can be a direct solution to rural poverty, indirect to urban poverty, 
Hence, one of the ideal solutions to the poverty problem in India. Okay, remember, throughout the last class, we were discussing the poverty solutions. Okay, self-employment, wage employment, UBI, these are all somewhere being talked about as a solution to poverty. One of the most durable solutions to Indian poverty can be increasing agricultural GDP growth. Okay, I hope I'm clear on that. And, and obviously, the other linked argument is higher the agricultural growth, more will be job creation in agriculture. Okay, now, uh, some of you may be thinking, but then we have disguised unemployment. Agreed. Uh, we have disguised unemployment in agriculture. But then, uh, every job is not disguised unemployment. So, generalizing that would be wrong. Even in agriculture, we do have productive jobs. Okay. And that productive jobs will be coming up only with higher agricultural growth. Okay, after all, disguised unemployment comes when agricultural growth is lower and there are more and more people getting employed. Okay, when agricultural growth is better, it will create jobs rather productive jobs. So, a couple of benefits we have done. The role of agriculture in job creation, poverty reduction. Let's move to something else. So, two of them we have done. Coming to the third one. Agriculture and industrial growth are also related. When rural income goes up with higher agricultural growth, it leads to more demand for industrial goods. So higher the rural income, more is the demand for industrial goods, which can be an important factor behind industrial growth. It can take the industrial growth to a higher level. Hope everyone is following. Okay. There is one more link which is very important. Higher the agricultural growth, typically lower will be the food inflation in the economy. The food prices don't go up very sharply. Why is that so? Because uh, uh, one part of agriculture is food grain production. Okay, so with better agricultural growth, if we have more food grain production, the food prices are uh, not increasing a lot, which keeps increase in wages under control. There is a controlled increase in wages due to that, which keeps cost of production lower. Here I am mainly thinking of cost of production for industries and when cost of production in industries remain lower that can be another factor behind higher industrial growth okay in fact this second line of argument is being repeated we have done something similar already okay remember uh, in the initial classes we had talked of supply side constraints mm -hmm. and there i had told you that lower agricultural growth can be a supply-side constraint because that increases cost of production. Okay, we are just reversing that. Act. What we did in supply-side constraint, we are just putting the other way around, that when growth is better, food prices are under control, cost of production is under control, increasing industrial growth. 
So, have you seen, if you combine both the arguments, it is telling that agriculture helps industries both from demand side and from supply side. Agriculture helps industrial growth both from demand and from supply side. And not to forget another simple supply side link, which I am sure you are aware of. Better agricultural growth also ensures cheaper raw materials for agro-based industries. Agro-based industries like food processing, cotton textiles, etc. Okay, they get cheaper raw materials when agricultural growth is better. That is also a favorable supply side link. Okay, I hope I'm clear on this. Okay, now unfortunately, our industrial policy typically ignores these links. Okay, if you look into most of the industrial policy statements in India, they typically ignore that link. They keep on talking about higher industrial growth will come through better technology, uh, more foreign investment, etc. Okay, all that is fine. Technology, foreign investment, all that is good. But if we don't have enough demand for these goods, if wages are not lower, then these technology or, or foreign investment will not be fruitful. Okay, and this will happen when agricultural growth is better. We have enough evidence of it, let me tell you, of, of both types. One evidence let me give you here itself. Have you noticed the last decade of Indian economy is a decade of industrial slowdown? From 2008 onwards, we are having lower industrial growth. Initially, it was because of crisis. 2008 was global crisis impacted industries. Agreed. But after 3-4 years, the crisis has been taken care of in the rest of the world. Still, our industrial growth is lower. Possibly another reason for it is lower agricultural growth. Okay, from 2012 till now, agricultural growth is very low in our country. Okay, with lower agricultural growth, where is demand for industrial goods going to come from? Okay, so that is why uh, ignoring agriculture can cost uh, much more than just GDP in the Indian economy. Okay, and let me wind up this part of discussion with one, one last argument. Higher agricultural growth is also essential for achieving food security goals. Higher agricultural growth helps in achieving food security goal. We have a section on food security later, so I'll be talking about it in detail. But here, just one uh, thing. Food security roughly means that the entire population should get affordable grains. Okay, if the entire population can get affordable food grains, we say that there is food security. Okay. And there are only two ways overall for any country, not just India, to achieve food security. So broadly speaking, there are only two ways to achieve food security. One, produce enough grains in your country. Second, import them. Okay, there is no other third option. Either produce enough grains in the own country or import the grains. And I hope you can see that second one is not for India. Okay, at least that is convinced 
that you are convinced of that uh, we cannot be dependent on food grain imports for our long term food security goal. Okay, so the only other option is go for better growth, produce enough grains so that food security can be achieved. More on this later. We have a section separately. So, this completes the importance of agriculture. <laughs> Moving to, yes. So find what what is the problem with that? Okay, that is where uh, we need to think of better agricultural marketing as well as MSP policy. Okay, uh, you are correct. In a way, food inflation is having uh, a kind of a double-edged sword. That benefits consumers, but that hurts the farmers. That is why it is said. But uh, at the same time, you should understand that the price which we pay as consumer for food grain is much much higher than farmers get for their produce. Okay, so who is uh, uh, taking up most of the benefits then? The middlemen. Okay, so the the main answer to your question is that removing the middlemen will tackle the problem. And that is what I'm sure you have done uh, directly, indirectly in APMC, model APMC, etc. So isn't model APMC act talking about uh, moving beyond APMC mandis, competitive markets, removing the middlemen, or contract farming, perhaps? Okay, contract farming is talking about removing the middlemen. So the answer to that question is not in lowering agricultural growth. The answer to that uh, problem is to remove the middlemen, make marketing more efficient. Okay, I hope I'm clear on that. Moving to the second part, more or less we are still in the introductory part, where we have a brief overview of post-independence agricultural sector. Perhaps a few things you may have done, but still, uh, we look into some major policies which are taken up in post-independence agricultural sector in India. Uh, we begin with the first five-year plan, which was 1951-56. The first five-year plan was very special for agriculture. Okay, we see tremendous focus on agriculture by government. And by the word focus here, I mean mainly public investment or government investment <coughs> in agriculture. And where exactly government was investing? Mainly in irrigation. Within irrigation, the highlight of first five-year plan was multi-purpose river valley projects. Okay, so this is the time when government invests in terms of setting up many multi-purpose river valley projects. Okay, the names like Bhakra Nangal, Damodar Valley, Hirakud Valley projects. Okay, uh, so the Damodar Valley, Hirakud Valley, Bhakra Nangal, these are the river valley projects which come up around this time. Okay. 
and due to uh, immense focus on irrigation, canal building was already there. Okay, canal building uh, was also very uh, uh, much public investment. So with canals, with multi-purpose river valley projects, okay, agricultural sector uh, growth rose sharply within the first five-year plan. Okay, so by the end of first five-year plan itself, we were getting benefits from uh, multiple irrigation projects. The agricultural growth went on uh, going ahead. However, uh, we lost the next decade in terms of agricultural growth. Despite starting off very well in agricultural policy, somehow 1956 to 66, which is second and third five-year plan, are not good for agriculture. Second, third, five-year plan, the focus on agriculture which we had earlier comes down and you know why. Okay, that was mainly because of Mahalanobis strategy, the heavy industrialization. From 1950, 1956 onwards, the entire focus of government goes for heavy industry, Mahalanobis strategy. So let's focus on agriculture. Let's focus on agriculture means lower agricultural growth. Okay. So bad was our agricultural growth in the second, even worse in the third five-year plan, that by 1960s, India was in severe food crisis. Okay, by mid-1960s, India was in severe food crisis. So bad uh, was, was our agricultural growth. It was in order to avoid this food crisis that India had to import grains from US. So that was the time of mid-1960s when we had imports of grains from US under what we call PL480 scheme. Uh, basically, PL stands for Public Law. Okay, it was Public Law 480, which is Public Law of US. So the Public Law 480 of US was uh, the, the rule under which India imported grains from US. Okay, I'm, I'm just trying to tell you that situation was really pathetic. Okay, uh, not just in agriculture, but overall economy. By mid-60s, India is in multiple problems. One is food crisis, for which we have to import grains. And remember, we are importing grains when we are already in VOP crisis. Hope you remember that. 1957 onwards, India is also in VOP crisis, which gets worse by this time. So, look at the irony. An agrarian economy, an agrarian economy importing grains from a developed country to avoid its food crisis when we are already in a BOP crisis. Okay, uh, it couldn't have come at a worse time perhaps. Okay, so despite being an agrarian economy, we were importing grains from a developed economy. Okay, and that too, when we were in BOP crisis. And yes, not to forget the two wars around the same time, which, which was also uh, uh, quite bad for Indian economy, okay? Irrespective of win or loss, let me tell you. War is a loss economically, okay? Uh, irrespective of politically, uh, whatever may be the result. So, in short, by mid-1960s, uh, uh, agriculture and overall economy is getting into a very poor shape. 
and there are many learnings which policy makers had from here. Okay, here we are interested in the learning in agriculture. The learning was that any kind of industrialization policy, whatever be the industrialization policy that we take up, we cannot go for industrialization without agricultural growth. So one thing which became very clear that was, agriculture is a sector which cannot be ignored, no matter what form of industrialization we go for. And that is clearly visible in our post-1965 policies. Post-1965-66, uh, you can say, There is focus on technological modernization of agriculture. And by technological modernization, we primarily mean use of modern inputs. So a number of modern inputs were uh, started to be used. I'm sure you are aware of uh, these examples, okay? Like HYV seeds, okay, high yielding varieties of seeds, particularly for beef. Okay, so uh, the high yielding varieties of seeds for beef, particularly in the beginning, which were developed in Mexico. Okay, uh, so India adopted these HYV seeds for beef, and along with that, a number of other inputs in the form of fertilizers, <coughs> pesticides, and a new focus on irrigation. So remember, irrigation was there earlier also. Uh, what do I mean by new focus on irrigation? Pre-1965, irrigation projects were mostly public irrigation projects. Pre-1965, irrigation was mainly in government hands, public irrigation projects. Post-1965, we have also focused on private irrigation or private irrigation equipments like tubers. Okay, so use of tubers or other private irrigation equipments become popular only after 1965. So all in all, uh, the technological modernization of agriculture was associated with multiple modern inputs being used in Indian agriculture. The impact of which was higher agriculture and within agriculture mainly food grains, productivity. So the agricultural productivity within agriculture, mainly the food grain productivity, went up due to the use of modern inputs, which led to higher production. And this is what we call the process of green revolution. Okay, um, green revolution, uh, which, which most of you must have read at least a little about, let me define it first here. Green revolution was the process of achieving higher agricultural productivity and production. Okay, green revolution was the process of achieving higher agricultural productivity 
and production mainly through the use of modern inputs. Okay, the process of achieving higher agricultural productivity and production mainly through the use of modern inputs. However, I should clarify here that productivity and production are related but uh, still very different. Productivity is what we call the efficiency in agriculture which is production per hectare or production per unit area. Okay, green devolution is special not just because it increased production. That production was driven through higher productivity. Okay, uh, and, and we'll, we'll keep on coming back to this productivity argument in one way or the other throughout our discussion on agriculture. Okay, so I hope I'm clear on this part. However, uh, talking about green devolution a little further. Green devolution within itself was a very long process going for say around 25 years in the Indian economy. Okay. And uh, there are at least two parts, two phases of green revolution, which we need to discuss here. The first one, starting from around 1966, going on till around 1979-80, which is late 1970s, you can say. And then, 1980 to 1990s. So first of all, green revolution was a long time period. Okay, technically we uh, start from around mid 60s, go until 1990. When we talk of the first phase of green revolution, it is said that it is not a very ideal phase because uh, of many reasons. Two of them primarily we talk about. Green revolution was uh, in the first phase was was facing limited increase in productivity. <coughs> so productivity was increasing, but it was limited. Rather, uh, if you look at Indian agriculture till mid 70s, till around mid 74, uh, mid 1974-75, there is hardly any increase in productivity. Okay, so it is only from uh, mid 70s that there is some increase in productivity, which is witnessed. That is one problem, one limitation. And the other limitation was the green revolution was benefiting few states or it was limited to few states. Okay, uh, the examples I'm sure most of you are known to, the states like Punjab, Haryana and Western UP. Okay, states like Punjab, Haryana and Western UP were the early beneficiaries of green revolution. Uh, there were many factors for it. Obviously, one factor was they are all wheat-growing states and we adopted first the HYV seeds for wheat. But it's not as simple as that. <clears throat> Actually, when we go through many other sections of our topic, somewhere or the other, we'll be uh, bringing back the green revolution features. Nevertheless, uh, till 1979-80, green revolution is not... Uh, very good or, or very much worthy of being called a revolution both because productivity increase is limited and its reach is also limited. Okay, and that is why the claim that it is causing regional disparities etc. The good thing is 
by the time we reach the final stage, final phase of green revolution, many of these limitations are either getting removed or getting diluted at least. By 1980-90, on one hand we had significant increase in agricultural productivity. Okay, I'm not quoting numbers, but the real increase in productivity can be traced to 1980-90. Okay, let me put it in, in some more words why this is so special. The increase in productivity which Indian agriculture experienced in this time, 80-90, to 90, was neither achieved before 1980 nor after 1990 till Okay, I repeat, the increase in productivity, remember, the percentage increase I am talking about, the, the percentage increase or rate of increase in productivity, which agriculture faces in 1980 to 90, was not achieved any time before 80, nor so far after 1990. So this increase is unparalleled, increase in agricultural productivity is unparalleled, in this decade. Obviously, it doesn't mean we have not increased productivity after 1990. I'm talking about the, the percentage. Okay, just one more thing to uh, mention here. Perhaps it is not a coincidence that the industrial recovery in Indian economy is also in the same time. Okay, after the failure of Mahalanobis strategy, our industrial growth kept on coming down. Okay, the recovery of Indian industrial growth is placed around 1980 onwards. Okay, can you see what we discussed in the beginning of the class? Agriculture helps industries. We have enough evidence of that. Okay, evidence of both types. When lower growth in agriculture leads to industrial slowdown, and when higher growth favors industrial sector. Okay, the other important thing of this time was, this is when green revolution is also spreading to, there is spread of green revolution to many other parts of the country. <clears throat> and within these other parts, uh, the, the primary spread is to the central India, even southern India. So central and southern states are benefiting from green revolution also by the last decade. To some extent western India, but, but more importantly the first two. Why was it happening? Uh, many reasons have been given. Obviously one reason is that uh, agricultural productivity increases with a lag. Okay, We cannot expect suddenly agricultural productivity increasing everywhere. It takes time to adopt the inputs, to use it, to, to benefit from there. But another very important factor behind this fact was benefiting from HYV seeds of rice or paddy. By the last decade of green revolution, we were also having HYV seeds for paddy, which were developed by <coughs> Philippines. Okay, so Philippines uh, developed HYV seeds for paddy, were adopted in India. That is why you will see that the spread is mainly to the rice growing uh, states of our country. Central, southern part both. 
being known for the, the rice cultivation, the paddy cultivation. Okay. However, there is one surprising and disappointing factor which remains in green revolution, uh, which is the eastern and northeastern states. Okay, the eastern and northeastern states still don't benefit much from green revolution. Okay, I, I told it is surprising and disappointing. Surprising because these eastern and northeastern states are also known for paddy production. Rather, some eastern states like uh, eastern UP and Bihar, they are known for both wheat and rice production. Okay, the geographical conditions are such that they are capable of producing both wheat and rice. And obviously the rest of them, very good for paddy production. Okay, how come uh, the, the Green Revolution didn't go to these states? Okay, it is quite surprising to, to begin with. And obviously disappointing. Because had this problem been taken care of, okay, uh, possibly all major criticism of Green Revolution would have been done away. Okay. Why did it happen? There is no simple answer, first of all. Okay, it, it's a mix of economic, political, historical factors. But fine, we'll, we'll begin with some arguments here and we'll possibly, possibly be developing that arguments in our other sections also. Okay, actually there are two basic uh, claims given why the eastern, northeastern states didn't benefit from green revolution. There are two contrary claims. One claim is that these states were not uh, aggressive enough to adopt Green Revolution. Okay, so one is blaming the states, that the states were not good enough, proactive enough to adopt Green Revolution uh, features. The other viewpoint is telling, it was bias in central government policy. Okay, it was bias in central government policy which didn't uh, benefit these states. Possibly there is some truth in both. Okay, one is telling that these states are to be blamed. The other viewpoint says that blame the center for its bias policy. There is some truth in both. I'll, I'll come to that later. But uh, I would say still the second argument is stronger. Okay, rather than blaming these states, uh, perhaps more problems were in central government policy. How can I say that? I will not use any logical or uh, other arguments here. I'll just give you an example here, which you will find very surprising. Uh, the example of Uttar Pradesh, UP. Can you see, UP is a very unique case in Green Revolution. While the western part of UP is one of the leaders in Green Revolution, the eastern part is not benefiting till the end of Green Revolution. Okay, while the western part of UP is lining with Punjab and Haryana in Green Revolution, the eastern part of the same state is, is not benefiting till the end. This is, this is very surprising if anyone looks into it. And at least this clarifies one thing. You cannot blame states beyond the point. Can you see? You cannot blame the uh, state government of UP. You cannot blame political party because at any point of time, the, the same political party was ruling over the entire UP. So definitely there were other factors than the, the uh, fault of state government. Okay, we'll come to that. 
Okay, uh, for example, one reason we'll very soon see that certain land reforms uh, made green revolution better in some parts and not so good in other parts. Okay, and, and more things when we do the MSP policy, etc. So, in one way or the other, we'll be developing this argument, as I told you. Okay, uh, I think this is all on the post-independence uh, uh, brief overall review of the agricultural sector. Okay, just one more brief section and then we begin with land reforms. Gradually taking you through from 1951 to 1990, okay, which is the time of green revolution, etc. We are now heading to the post-91 agriculture. When we look into post-91 agriculture, uh, things are not as good as it should have been. Actually, post-91 Indian agriculture is more about challenges. There are a number of challenges which we are facing in agricultural sector. And I'm going to first of all enlist these challenges, which will be our uh, guidelines um, in, in any section that we do on agriculture. Okay, let's straight away come to some of these important serious challenges. First, lower agricultural productivity. I had given you a hint already that after 1990, the increase in agricultural productivity is not very sharp. Okay, and, and let's again highlight that don't mix productivity with production. Okay, some people say, uh, but we are largest producers of many agricultural uh, produce. Yes, I agree. Okay, India may be largest producers of many agricultural crops or produce, but when it comes to productivity, we are among the bottom ranking countries in the world. Okay, in terms of agricultural productivity, okay, we rank among the bottom countries of the world. Okay, there is a lot of potential to increase agricultural productivity in different crops. And this is the main reason why the average agricultural growth after 91 has been lower. Okay, the post-91 Indian agricultural growth on an average has been lower. In fact, if you remove uh, some exceptional time period, mainly the time period of 2005 to 12, perhaps I talked about this earlier also. It is 2005 to 12, during which there is a significantly better agricultural growth than earlier. If you remove this time, okay, post-91 agriculture is very pathetic. Okay, uh, in terms of number, agricultural growth will be below 2% per annum. Below 2% per annum, if I remove this part. Okay, below 2% per annum growth rate is, is nothing. Okay, uh, for a country which is uh, one of the most populous country and needs a lot of food grain for our food security. Okay. Uh, so this is one challenge, I would say the major challenge which Indian agriculture is facing. But that is not the only thing. The second challenge is lack of equitable growth. So first of all, agricultural growth has been lower. Whatever growth we have seen is not equitable. Okay. Or in other words, 
most benefits of agricultural growth have gone to the large farmers. Okay, large farmers as in farmers having large area under their ownership. Why? At least two to three sections of Indian agriculture is uh, not benefiting. Okay, let me name some of them. Small and marginal farmers. Okay, perhaps you are aware of the meaning of these terms. Small and marginal farmers refer to uh, the farmers having below two hectares of land, up to two hectares of land. Okay, then we have tenant farmers or simply tenants. Uh, the word tenant in agriculture means someone who is cultivating others' land. Okay, uh, someone who is cultivating others' land are called tenants. Remember, there may be some overlap also. A small farmer may also work as a tenant. Okay, because his small land holding may not give him uh, enough to earn his livelihood. So, so he may go for working as a tenant. And then the worst scenario is for the third category, the landless laborers. So these three categories have not benefited or they have got less benefits of agricultural growth. And the benefits are going down in that order also. Okay, all of them are not benefiting much, but uh, tenants are benefiting even less than say the marginal farmers typically. And the landless laborers are our worst of uh, uh, compared to the others. Okay, uh, because uh, they, they are not even having the smaller piece of land to benefit from. This is clearly a major challenge which India needs to tackle. Okay, <clears throat> coming to the third challenge, which is about lack of remunerative prices to farmers. Okay, I was talking about it earlier also. Okay, uh, if farmers produce enough, that is not uh, going to benefit them for a guaranteed way. They must be getting a remunerative price for their produce. That is where comes the role of uh, MSP policy. Okay, which I talk about in the coming class more. Uh, and even policies like agricultural marketing, which you have done in geography in detail the model APMC acts, etc. They are crucial is ensure, in ensuring that farmers get remunerative price for their produce. And uh, winding up with this section, the fourth and last challenge, which I would put here is challenges from globalization. So post-91 Indian economy is also a globalized economy. Okay. And globalization has brought fresh challenges for the Indian agriculture. The main challenge is this, that uh, now Indian agriculture uh, not only needs to worry about its domestic sustainability, Indian agriculture also has to compete with agricultural imports. Okay, so the challenge before agriculture is not just domestic any longer. The challenge is also to compete with agricultural imports. Okay, and remember these agricultural imports 
are coming from some of the most developed countries of the world. Okay, uh, we are not competing with, with uh, minor countries per se, the smaller countries. These agricultural imports are coming from US, okay, uh, European economies, Australia, New Zealand. Okay, these all countries are known for uh, one or the other agricultural produce in the world. And, and that is what is making uh, the, the challenge very tough for Indian agriculture. Okay, although this fourth challenge I'll talk more in our last class uh, on WTO. Okay, so when we do WTO, the World Trade Organization, in the last class, there is a section linking WTO to Indian agriculture. And that is where we'll be looking more on that. Okay, for the rest of this discussion, we'll be mainly revolving around the three challenges. Okay. Now, the reason why I put these challenges before you uh, are, are multiple, apart from obviously telling you what are the problems which we face. These challenges will be helping you a lot in answering your main questions in, in agriculture. Okay, uh, when, when you get your uh, questions in the mains examination, it is possible that certain things might have been done in class, either geography or economics. But even if it is not, or, or uh, done briefly, let's say, how do you take a viewpoint on that? How do you know that uh, uh, some policy X is good for Indian agriculture or not? When you are in doubt, you can at least ask these three, four questions from yourself. Okay, like whether this policy will lead to better agricultural productivity. Whether, whether it will make the agricultural growth more equitable. Whether it will provide good prices to the farmers or in some way help us in competing with agricultural imports. Even if you get one yes to your uh, questions answer, then it means that you can go ahead and support that policy. Otherwise, it is more likely to be a political gimmick, okay, uh, rather than a genuine productive economic policy. So all in all, in summary, these challenges will somewhere be helping you as well. Okay, so we are done with the, the challenges part. And uh, the major section, the first major section on agriculture begins now. This is going to be on land reforms. Okay. Uh, I know that you have not done much on land reforms. Perhaps in post-independence class you have. No, you have not. Fine. We'll be taking it up. Don't worry. I know that land reforms have not been covered. That is why uh, more or less the entire class, okay, remaining entire class will be uh, around the different types of land reforms in India. Questions are coming very regularly on land reforms. Okay. Uh, so, so just wanted to highlight why we are spending quite a good deal of time on that. I divide land reforms into two main parts. Traditional land reforms, which you can call pre-91 land reforms, and then modern land reforms, which are post-91 land reforms. Okay, what are the difference, etc. We'll see later. Okay, ignore it. Let's begin with traditional reforms. Okay. Uh, in fact, for your examination, we have seen more questions from around traditional land reforms only. Okay. Coming to the first one, there are about five reforms which we do. 
Okay, beginning with the first thief of called abolition of intermediaries. This reform is started immediately after independence, roughly in the first uh, decade of planning. And the word intermediary you must be aware of from your history uh, class. Okay, uh, we are talking about the intermediary system in land revenue. Okay, the land revenue uh, systems which was there in India pre-independence. Okay, we are talking about intermediaries there. Okay, uh, the best example being the zamindars. Very correct. Okay, the best example of intermediaries being the zamindars. Why did we call zamindars as an intermediary? Because uh, they were in between the actual cultivators, whom we can call tenants, on one hand, and the government on the other. Uh, when I talk of government right now, we are talking of government under the British rule, the government of India under British rule, the pre-independence government. In between the tenants and the government, we had intermediaries like Zamindars. Okay, what exactly was uh, their role? Uh, as you might be knowing, their main role was to collect land revenue from the tenants and pass it on to the government. Okay, so we called them intermediaries in terms of collecting the land revenue and uh, giving a certain predetermined land revenue to the government. But why do we need to abolish it? Uh, because the intermediaries uh, were, were creating at least two types of problems. One, they were exploiting tenants. Uh, that you must have read about. Uh, the zamindars or other intermediaries were exploiting tenants. Why so? Because without that, they couldn't have paid higher land revenue to the government. Okay, I hope these things are repetitive for you. That uh, in permanent settlement or zamindari system, government demanded higher land revenue from the zamindaris. Okay, the permanently settled land revenue was generally on the higher side. Okay, in order to give higher land revenue, they had to extract more of it from tenants exploiting. Okay, problem number one. Second problem, intermediaries or intermediary system was also the system when our agricultural productivity was low. So you will see that productivity is in our argument from the beginning. Why intermediary system kept our productivity in agriculture lower? Answer is, to increase productivity, someone should invest in agriculture. Okay, there must be some stakeholder who should invest to increase productivity. Now, we have three uh, stakeholders here. Tenants could not invest because they were not having money. They were hardly having money to pay land revenue. Forget about investment. Fine. Government was not interested in investment. Okay, the British government didn't invest, that didn't fit in their uh, colonial economic setup. Okay, if you look into the colonial economic setup, 
government was least interested in agricultural industry okay so the one who is left is again only the intermediaries like zamindars who also didn't invest although this is surprising if you go by economic logic zamindar should have invested pure economic logic will tell zamindar should have invested why because that would have allowed them to collect more land revenue more investment more production more land revenue okay so it is quite surprising why didn't the zamindars invested they didn't invest because the zamindari rights were temporary rights which again i hope you are aware of okay if not very quickly zamindari rights were temporary rights temporary in the sense once they failed to pay land revenue to government if zamindars failed to pay land revenue to government zamindari rights were taken away and auctioned okay there was a provisioning of auctioning of zamindari rights and actually about 40% of zamindari rights were auctioned okay in reality 40% of zamindari rights were auctioned or in simple words 40% of zamindars uh, lost their rights i hope you get the answer now why didn't zamindars invest they didn't invest because their rights were temporary they were not sure of benefiting from their own investment okay zamindars were not sure of benefiting from their own investment i hope you are following that okay so in summary no one invested the productivity remained relatively low okay let's come to the reform now and let me tell you whenever we are taking any land reform uh, we are focusing mainly on its four aspects to make the discussion systematic the meaning of land reform the rationale behind it why was that taken up its implementation okay and finally a brief appreciation as in whether implement why it was well or not well implemented i think if you are known to these four things you can handle any question on land reform okay let's come to the meaning first meaning of this reform is straightforward okay anyone can guess by now remove the zamindar okay abolish the intermediary once the intermediary is removed the tenants come in direct contact with government okay obviously now we are talking of post independence government okay so post independence when this reform is taken up the tenants come in direct contact with the government by direct contact i mean they are still paying land revenue but lower land revenue and paying directly to government so post independence land revenue is much much lower than pre independence okay so land revenue post independence are much lower paid directly to the government i hope you got the rationale also okay the rationale of this reform was one to reduce their exploitation okay they are paying lower land revenue so their exploitation is no longer there and second it gives them incentive to invest 
Okay, it gives them incentives to invest, thereby increasing agricultural productivity. Okay, so abolition of intermediary had both rationales. One, to reduce the exploitation of tenants because they were paying lower land revenue and allowing them to invest so that productivity can go. Okay, both meaning rationale both are clear. Coming to implemented, this is the best implemented land reform in India. So among the traditional land reforms, this is very well implemented land reform. Okay, and what is the reason behind this? Uh, despite many reasons, the main reason given is political. It is said that there is enough political will, there was enough political will with the states to implement the reform. Okay, there was enough political will with the states to implement the reform. Okay, let me simplify this. In fact, uh, the, first of all, I hope you are aware that land reforms are state subject. Okay, that is why whenever we talk of implementation of land reform, states are important, the state governments are important. Okay, uh, the only exception to this will be the last modern land reform. But don't worry about that here. As long as I don't tell you anything, all the land reforms are state subject. Okay, hope you are following. Okay, now coming to what, are, what do I mean by political will with the states? By that I mean that since Zamindars were loyal to British, since Zamindars were loyal to British pre-independence, they were easily segregated politically. Okay, since Zamindars were loyal to British before independence, after independence they are easily politically segregated. It's easier to remove them. I hope you are following that. Zamindar as a class was clearly uh, segregated and then it was easier to remove them. That is what we are calling political will. Okay, with the state government to implement. Although not to forget one economic factor. Zamindars got monetary compensation when they uh, leave the Zamindari rights. So after independence, when they left Zamindari rights, they got monetary compensation. That monetary compensation made implementation also better. Okay, so best implemented land reform, primarily because there was enough political will. Politically, the Zamindari class was segregated and because the monetary compensation were given. Okay, we are done with this reform largely. But I need to add one last thing here. In our discussion so far, we are taking tenants as a uniform class, as a homogeneous class, which is not true. When we talk of tenants at the time of independence or immediately post-independence, we can divide tenants at least into tenants. One, occupancy. And second, subtenants. Let me explain how do they differ and why we are talking about it. 
poor occupancy tenants. The name is giving you some hint already. Occupancy tenants means those who had occupancy or ownership rights on land before the land revenue system. So even before the land revenue systems came up, like Zamindari, there was some ownership pattern, some occupancy pattern. Those tenants who had occupancy rights are being called occupancy tenants. Subtenants are the ones who are cultivating others' land. Okay, whom we call tenants more in the present form. Okay, in the present discussion, you can call them either tenant or subtenant. Okay, let me clarify further. Uh, you will say, if they are having ownership rights, why are we calling them tenants? Because under Zamindari system, they became tenants. They were otherwise owners of land, but they became tenants under Zamindari system. But once Zamindari system is abolished, these occupancy tenants became landowners. Very correct. They are no longer tenant. Although that took some time. It's not as easy as we are discussing here. It took some time. But these occupancy tenants gradually became landowners. Hope everyone is following that. Why am I discussing about it? If I ask you, who is benefiting from the first reform? Are all tenants benefiting? No. Only the occupancy tenants. Okay, the first reform benefits only occupancy tenants, not the subtenants. Okay, not the ones who were in any case uh, cultivating others' land or they were not having their own land. Okay, so the, the first land reform is benefiting only occupancy tenants, not the subtenants. Okay, but uh, don't worry, we are coming to some reform for subtenants also. Okay, after the first reform, we talk about the reform related to the subtenants, which is formally called tenancy reform. Okay, the meaning first. What do we mean by tenancy reforms? Tenancy reforms were about uh, two things primarily. First, security of tenure given to subtenants. Security of tenure given to subtenants. What is security of tenure? Tenure means the time period of cultivation. Okay, going by the literal meaning in any case, tenure here means for what time period are subtenants cultivating others' land. And security of tenure would mean that they should be given a longer term security. Okay, as far as the time period is concerned. Hope you are following. In other words, security of tenure means the subtenant should not be removed from land whenever the landowner wants. Okay, the subtenant shouldn't be removed at the will of the landowner 
they should be given a long term security in terms of the time period of cultivation. Why so? What is the rationale? The rationale is such a security will give them more incentives. Okay, this security will give them more incentive to increase agricultural productivity. There is more incentive to increase agricultural productivity with the subtenants. The argument is very simple, still very important. Okay, I hope you are getting the argument first. That why is it giving incentive? Incentive because compared to tenants, one who can be removed at any point of time and the other who gets a long-term security. The second one is more likely to uh, sacrifice towards higher productivity. Okay, why did I say it's so important? Because in common discussions on agricultural productivity, suppose I ask you a general question that how do we increase productivity in agriculture? A common answer would be bring better technology, modern machinery, agreed, okay, uh, that all is needed. What we often forget is, despite better technology, better machinery, better cropping methods, unless the final cultivator doesn't have incentive to use them properly, unless the final cultivator has enough incentive to use it, productivity will not increase. Don't forget, the final cultivator mainly in our country are these subtenants. And remember, uh, this is very relevant even today. Okay, although we are talking about a very uh, early land reform, somewhere in 1960s we are talking of this reform. But this is very relevant today. Reason, still uh, uh, most of the actual cultivators are subtenants. So giving them incentive is crucial. Hope you are clear on that. Coming to the second part. Apart from security of tenure, this reform talked about regulation of rent. Okay, basically rent here means the rent which subtenants are paying to landowners. Okay, whenever subtenant is cultivating others' land, they have to pay a rent. Okay, regulation of rent means lower rent. Okay, regulation of rent means lower rent should be charged from the subtenants. <coughs> okay, hope you uh, uh, understand that also easily. Without lower rent, security is of no value. Okay, if I give security of tenure but charge very high rent from the farmer, from the subtenant, the purpose gets defeated. That is why tenancy reforms talked about security of tenure plus lower rent. Just uh, uh, one more thing to generally clarify. How is this rent paid in our country? It can be paid either in cash or in kind. Okay, the kind one is more common in India. Okay, which we call the arrangement of share cropping. Okay, in fact, the most common type of sub-tenants in India are share croppers. Anyone uh, remotely associated with rural economy must be knowing about sharecroppers. Sharecroppers are the subtenants who give a share of their produce as rent to the landowner. Okay, so sharecroppers are subtenants 
who give a share of their produce as rent to the landowners. This is the most common rent arrangement in our country in general. I, I just wanted to tell you about it. Okay, let's come to the implementation. The meaning and rationale, we have done both. Coming to implementation, this reform is not as well implemented as the first one. Okay, remember, compared to first one, it is not so well implemented. It doesn't mean that it is very poorly implemented. We have some success case also. But why is it not so well implemented? More or less, the reason is on similar line as earlier. Here we had some lack of political will. Okay, for tenancy reform implementation, there was lack of political will. What do I mean by that? Simple. Have you noticed one thing? Tenancy reforms require the landowners to share some of their benefits with the subtenants. In simple words, tenancy reform is about landowners will have to share some benefits with subtenants, which landowners, most of them, didn't want. Okay, most of the landowners didn't want to share these benefits. And they were politically strong clubs, don't forget. Zamindars are gone, landowners are there. And landowners are politically strong. Okay, so since landowners were politically strong, influential, they managed not to give these benefits to the subtenants. Okay, the landowner class being politically strong didn't want to share these benefits with the subtenants. I hope I'm clear on that. Okay, but one thing makes it interesting, and that is most of these land reforms unless I specifically mention, are legal reforms. Okay, even the first one, uh, I didn't tell you, but even the abolition of intermediary was a legal reform. Okay, there were legislations on them, like Zamindari Abolition Act, you might have heard of. Okay, the Zamindari Abolition Act was, was passed in many states. Similarly, for this reform, we had Tenancy Act, Okay, now why am I mentioning it is, how can a legal reform be not implemented? Okay, not difficult to uh, guess, due to multiple legal loopholes. There are many legal loopholes which the landowner class bring in to avoid implementing uh, this reform and many other reforms. The list can go on, but let me give uh, you the major legal loophole. Discouraging subtenants to get legally registered. The landowner class ensured that subtenants are not legally registered. I hope you can understand why this is becoming a major loophole. Because being a legal reform, when would subtenants get these benefits? When they are legally registered. Okay, so that is what they discouraged in particular. They, they didn't allow them to get legally registered. Hence, the reform is not so well implemented in majority of the states. But we have some exception uh, here. We have some cases of success also. 
And the best examples are the states of West Bengal and Kerala. Although apart from these two also there are some states who implement this reform decently well. But the best implementers of this reform are the states of West Bengal and Kerala. A link uh, which anyone can guess between the two is the Communist Party ruling over both the states for a long time. And yes, we have guessed it right. It is primarily due to that reason that tenancy reforms are more successful. Fine, we generally criticize communist uh, parties' economic policies very often. Okay, but we have to praise their uh, achievement on land reforms. Okay, and, and uh, that is clearly visible in West Bengal and Kerala. Let's take an example from West Bengal, which is uh, quite interesting. When in late 1970s, Communist Party comes in power in West Bengal. They launch a campaign named as Operation Barga, B-A-R-G-A, or sometimes we call it Operation Barga Dar. It's one and the same thing. Basically, this word Barga Dar uh, in local language refers to sharecroppers. Okay, Bargadars uh, are, are sharecroppers. And what is Operation Bargadar uh, uh, trying to do? Nothing but registration of sharecroppers. So understanding the reform is very simple. Operation Bargadar was just about a campaign to register as many sharecroppers as possible. And I hope why uh, this was being done is clearly known to you. Because once they were registered, they could have asked for the rights like security or lower risk. Okay, so that is why the states like West Bengal do better. Even in Kerala, we had similar examples. But West Bengal case is more unique. Let me tell you why. Earlier I told you that except eastern and northeast part of the country, the entire country is having a, a green revolution in 1980s. But West Bengal's agricultural growth is higher during 1980s. If we look into the entire eastern part of the country, it is only West Bengal where agricultural growth is higher. Not because of green revolution. There is no green revolution in West Bengal. West Bengal higher agricultural growth was mainly due to their successful tenancy reforms. Okay, the higher agricultural growth in West Bengal in 1980s is mainly due to their successful tenancy reforms. Okay, now this example is very important. Let me tell you why. Because many a times uh, you, you will uh, see, see some people questioning land reforms. They will say, okay, in theory you tell it increases productivity, production, but do we have any realistic example? Yes, we have. Few, but we have. West Bengal is the classic example that land reforms have increased productivity, have increased production. Okay, otherwise, without any use of modern inputs, West Bengal couldn't have achieved higher agricultural growth. We had similar things in Kerala as well. But then Kerala faced green revolution as well, so it is difficult to disagree with. 
Okay, so uh, that that is something uh, which is important, and that is I think all on the tenancy reforms. I hope I'm clear on uh, both of them. Coming to the third one, that is much simpler reform, both in terms of meaning and rationale. This is called ceiling reform or more formally, the reform talked about ceiling on land holdings and redistribution of surplus land to landless. Okay, uh, I hope I don't need to explain much on meaning. Uh, basically, this reform has got two steps. One, put an upper limit, a ceiling on the area of land holding. Whatever area is beyond that ceiling is considered surplus land, which needs to be redistributed to the landlords. Okay, I hope uh, it's straightforward in terms of meaning. Okay, let's come to rationale. The rationale of this reform was to decrease uh, inequality in land ownership. So when we got independence, the other problem which we were facing was land inequality was very high. Okay, there were uh, a few farmers having very large area of land under their ownership. Okay. And on the other hand, uh, many of them landless, small farmers, etc. So to decrease inequality, the ceiling reform was launched. Okay. What is the rationale behind it? Uh, apart from that, fine, inequality uh, should be lower, that we often say. Socially, it is justified to have lower inequality. But it has got economic justification as well. It is claimed that when land inequality is lower, this also gives more incentive. And I'm repeating this, we have done this in the last uh, reform also. It also gives more incentive to increase productivity. Okay, more equal land holdings give better incentives to increase productivity. Like if a landless farmer gets even a small piece of land, and you would have better incentive to increase productivity. Okay, hope you are following so far. Meaning rationale we have done. On implementation, uh, you can guess, this is not a well-implemented reform. Okay, uh, even poorly implemented than the earlier reform. And why did I say you could have guessed it? The reason is that a country where tenancy reforms are not well implemented in majority of the states, ceiling will never be. Can you see that? Because in tenancy reforms, landowners were expected to share some benefits with subtenants. If they were not ready to do that, where is the question of giving landless the land? Okay, no way. Okay, a country where subtenants are not given basic benefits. How can landless be given land by these landowners? So, without much surprise, ceiling remains a very poorly implemented land reform. 
And so was the fate of uh, a parallel reform, which I'm sure you have heard of, Bhutani. Okay, uh, parallelly to this reform, we had uh, a, a movement called Bhutani. Bhutan literally means voluntary surrender of land. Launched by Acharya Vinoba Bhave. Okay, uh, there was a movement for voluntary surrender of land. Uh, Vinoba Bhave was uh, uh, telling the landowners to voluntarily surrender their land. Both Sealing and Bhutan are conceptually similar. The difference is one is legal, the other is voluntary. However, they are similar in terms of poor implementation back again. Okay, <laughs> neither legal nor voluntary uh, uh, reform work in case of our country. And uh, the result is known to you. That is why still in India, our land ownership inequality is very high. Okay, I hope you remember our inequality discussion, where I had told you that land ownership inequality is still very high in India. Not surprising, the ceiling reform was not uh, successful. And one last thing in implementation, whatever land got redistributed also. First of all, there was not much land redistributed. Whatever got redistributed also was mostly infertile land. Okay, defeating the very purpose of the reform. Okay, so whatever land got redistributed was also mostly infertile. Okay, so the very purpose of the reform was defeated due to that. Okay, so there is nothing more to discuss on the ceiling reform. Let's come to another very important reform and very relevant reform even today. Consolidation. Okay, you can call it consolidation reforms or more formally consolidation of land holdings. Consolidation of land holdings. Now, before talking about meaning and rationale, let's have a background first. This reform comes somewhat later than the first three, roughly since 1970. Okay, the first three land reforms which we have done so far are mostly in 1950s and 60s. This comes a little later. Because by 1970s, in Indian agriculture, there is a, a problem which is becoming serious day by day. The problem of smaller and scattered or fragmented landholders. Okay, so uh, this reform is related to a problem called smaller and scattered landholdings. Let's explain what it means and why is it happening. Smaller land holding, self-explained, but why land holdings are getting smaller? Because of population pressure rising on agriculture. Okay, by 1970s, there is, there is massive population pressure on agriculture. You know why? Uh, you know that we were not creating enough industrial jobs. So if industrial jobs are not created, uh, we have not given any option. More population is dependent on agriculture. So generation by generation, the land holding size started getting smaller. Not just that, scattered, fragmented. This means that typically, even if farmer is having little more land holding, 
that is not at one place in a village. That's a common uh, observation in Indian villages that if a farmer has got a small piece of land at one place, another one will be 100 meters away. A third one, another 100 meters away. It's a common observation. Okay. Why does it happen? Mainly because of difference in soil fertility. Okay, the main reason why land holdings are scattered, fragmented, is that fertility differs across the world. These things are better understood by people who have a little experience in rural economy. Okay, um, that's, that's not needed to be uh, an expert on that, but this is very common because the fertility difference can be massive across the different parts of the village. That is why scattered land holdings. But this is causing a problem, rather problems. One major problem due to uh, this feature is less efficient input use. Inputs cannot be used efficiently if the land holdings are getting smaller and fragmented. Logical enough, it's difficult to apply fertilizers or irrigate the smaller and scattered blocks. Hope everyone is following. If there is less efficient input use, it will keep productivity low. So that was another reason which was keeping our agricultural productivity lower. Now we can come to the meaning and rationale. Okay, now it will be clear enough. The meaning of this reform as the meaning of word consolidation is giving you hint is to bring. So consolidation talks about bringing smaller and scattered land holdings together in bigger blocks. So under consolidation, the smaller and scattered land holdings are brought together in bigger blocks. Just like the literal meaning of consolidation. Okay, and I hope the rest you can guess. Once they are brought in bigger blocks, there is more efficient input use, thereby increasing agricultural productivity. Okay, if inputs can be used more effectively, it will improve productivity. Okay, although there is another benefit of consolidation, it increases area under cultivation also. Okay, that sounds a little surprising. How can area under cultivation increase under this? Because when there are smaller scattered plots, we waste a lot of land in bordering and fencing. That is the reality. No matter how small the plot is, a farmer will uh, sacrifice a lot of land in bordering and fencing. Uh, they are not to be blamed. Okay, They fear that their land can be grabbed and that, that happens in rural economy. Okay. So this bordering fencing leads to wastage of it. Consolidation okay, uh, helps in bringing more area under cultivation. Although the main rationale is it will increase productivity, but it also brings more area under cultivation. So whichever way you think about it, consolidation is justified. In fact, whatever we have discussed is uh, in economic theory, an example of economies of scale. I talked about this phrase earlier also, and I must have told you 
that economies of scale means large scale production improves productivity. Okay, so what is happening in consolidation? A large scale production in bigger blocks is improving productivity. Okay, so meaning rationale both are clear. Coming to implementation. Except a few states, consolidation also is poorly implemented. Okay, we don't have very good implementation. Okay, why so? Mostly we saw the farmers resisting consolidation, which is surprising. Okay, why would farmers resist? Because they could have benefited from productivity. Why did farmers resist? Let me tell you some reasons behind it. If you have noticed uh, the, the consolidation meaning, you, you might have seen that. In consolidation, there is need to shift land ownership. Consolidation of land holdings cannot happen without shifting land ownership. Okay, let's take a quick example. Suppose that there is a part in village where say three farmers are having smaller adjoining land holdings. There are three farmers each having small land holding around each other. Now suppose we want to consolidate. Basically we are telling one farmer that you will get a bigger block here. But to give one farmer a bigger block, the other two farmers will have to give up ownership there. Isn't it? The other two farmers will have to give up land ownership there and they will get some land ownership in other part of the village. Okay, so consolidation needs to shift land ownership. Okay, logically speaking, without that, consolidation is impossible. And that is what farmers resisted mostly. They did not want to shift land ownership. Why? Two reasons have been given mainly for that. Okay, the first one is, and I'm putting it uh, in one corner because we'll be using it even more in our coming discussion. One reason why farmers didn't want to shift land ownership is what we call due to lack of conclusive ownership rights. What is the meaning of lack of conclusive ownership rights? Conclusive means legally valid. Okay, the word conclusive means here legally valid. So we are talking about a problem called lack of legally valid ownership rights. Or in, in simple words, what am I telling is, in villages, many a times when uh, land redistribution takes place. Okay, suppose from one generation to the other, land is getting redistributed. They don't necessarily go to legally register. Uh, there may not be legal registration of every landholder. Okay, uh, uh, possibly because this redistribution is very uh, uh, regular. Unlike in urban center, the redistribution of rural land is very regular. Okay, it, it keeps on happening uh, quite regularly. So they don't go to say a registry office to get it legally registered. I hope you are following that. Why is it a problem? This is problem due to many reasons and I'll talk more on this. Here it is a problem because with lack of conclusive rights, 
grabbing of land becomes more common. Okay, whenever there is lack of conclusive rights, the land grabbing becomes more common. Okay, I hope you are uh, following that. Because uh, in, in that case, some influential persons can grab others' land because in any case, they don't have the legal right over the land. Okay, that is one reason why farmers resisted shifting their land ownership. Okay, why farmers don't want to shift land ownership? One reason is they feared that in this shift, their land can be grabbed. Which sounds a little funny to the urban population, but not so uh, in rural. Okay, the land grabbing problem is very common in rural because their rights are not conclusive. Hope I'm clear on this. And the second reason why they resisted, okay, that is simpler to guess. Because the land fertility differs across the world. Okay, so second reason why they didn't want to shift land ownership is because there is difference in uh, the land fertility. Or in simpler words, what is the proof that, uh, that one bigger block will be equally fertile as the other bigger block? Okay, I hope you are getting the point. So these are the two reasons and very valid reasons. You can't blame the farmers. Okay, these are very valid reasons in a way why consolidation doesn't happen in majority of uh, the, the states. But as I told you, there are some exceptions here. Okay. Interestingly, we have talked about these exceptions in some other context. Consolidation reforms are more successful in states like Punjab, Haryana, and Western UP. Precisely the same examples which we gave in Green Revolution. Okay, so yes, there is a link between consolidation and Green Revolution. Okay, you can say consolidation is one of the preconditions. Consolidation was one of the preconditions for Green Revolution. It's very logical. You don't need to think much on that. <laughs> green Revolution was about modern inputs. Better seeds, fertilizers, tube wells, etc. How can these inputs be used on scattered landholders? Think logical. It's difficult to use tube wells on uh, land holdings which are uh, significantly apart. So consolidation was a precondition. The states which consolidated their land holdings earlier were the early leaders in Green Revolution. Okay, the states who consolidated their land holdings quickly were the leaders in Green Revolution. So Punjab, Haryana, etc. don't benefit only because they are wheat growing states but also because they consolidate their land holdings quite early. Okay, I hope I'm getting clear on that. Which is good. For which they should be phrased in a uh, way. Because that consolidation helped not only these states, but in a way the rest of the economy in, in ensuring food security. But one note of caution with which we end up this part is, when these states went for consolidation, or parts of states, even they did not solve the problem of 
lack of conclusive rates. So the states went for consolidation without solving this problem, lack of conclusive rates. The result of that was, even today, if you go to the interiors of these states or parts of states, you will see a number of landless or small farmers who lost their land during consolidation. Okay, I repeat. These states are known as a, a, a developed ones in agriculture at least. But in the interiors of the same state, you will see many landless or small farmers who lost their land during consolidation. Okay, they still complain that they, their land was grabbed because the conclusive rights were not there. We should remember this limitation. Okay, we should remember this limitation and, and let me tell you why all the more it is relevant. If you talk of the fact that how many of these reforms are relevant today, Okay, uh, some of them are, and definitely one land reform which is quite relevant today is consolidation. Okay, uh, reason being, the, the land plots are getting further smaller and, and uh, fragmented. Okay, from 1970s onwards, our land holdings are getting further smaller, further fragmented. So we need consolidation even today. But we should not make the same mistake as we, as these states made earlier. When we go for consolidation now, we should first solve the problem of lack of conclusive rights. Okay, so whenever we go for consolidation and wherever we go for it, we should first resolve the problem of lack of conclusive rights. Otherwise, consolidation can be problematic. Okay. Uh, just one last thing here, which is comparison between our third and fourth, and then we move to the last traditional one. Have you noticed one thing? Ceiling and consolidation appear to contradict each other. Okay, if you just look into the meaning of ceiling and consolidation, they appear to be contradicting each other. Why? Because ceiling is talking about cutting down the land cells. Consolidation is talking about making bigger blocks. Okay, but they are not contradictory. Okay, they seem, but they are not contradictory. Let me explain why. They are not contradictory because they are handling different problems of the Indian agriculture. Ceiling is handling one extreme of problem, which is few landowners having very large area of land. So ceiling reform is desirable because there are few landowners having very large area of land. And the problem is that they are not cultivating it productively. In fact, if area is very large, that is likely to be sold to non-agriculture. That is what we are witnessing in India. So ceiling, I repeat, are for those who have very, very large land uh, sites. Consolidation is for other extremes. Okay, the smaller fragmented landholders. Okay, rather than contradicting, can you see they are complementary? Okay, in, in ideal situations, ceiling and consolidation are complementing each other. Why? Because if both reforms become successful, we will get more of middle sized landholders. 
Okay, suppose in, a, in an ideal case, sealing and consolidation both are successful. Sealing will bring down the bigger size to a lower one. Consolidation will consolidate the smaller fragmented into the bigger one. We will get more middle-sized land holdings. Okay, which you can call to be, say, ranging in 10-15 hectares. Okay, which is what India needs. Okay, we neither need very large land ownership, nor do we need smaller and fragmented ones. We need more middle-sized land holdings. And that is where sealing and consolidation are complementing each other. Okay, but sealing is now kind of a politically impossible reform. Most of the agricultural experts think that sealing cannot be implemented. If they were not, not implemented in 1960s and 70s, today it is more difficult. So at least go for implementing consolidation. Okay, so sealing is politically not very uh, possible reform. That is why at least go for consolidation. Okay, I hope I'm clear on it. I'm coming to the last one in the traditional set. which is cooperative farming. Cooperative farming is very similar to consolidation. You will realize that. So defining it first. Cooperative farming means voluntary pooling of land holdings by farmers and cultivating that collectively. Okay, you can call it collective farming as well. The idea is that the farmers can pool their land holdings voluntarily and then cultivate it collectively. Going by this logic, you will see that cooperative farming is also based on the argument of economies of scale. Okay, uh, that is what makes it similar to consolidation. Both are uh, economies of scale argument. Because in cooperative farming also, when voluntarily pooling is done, it will give rise to bigger blocks. I hope you can see that. So bigger blocks, economies of scale, more efficient input use. Okay, but there are many differences also. I hope you have marked at least a few of them. One, consolidation is legal, while cooperative farming so far in India is voluntary. Okay, we have no legal mechanism for cooperative farming. Okay, and uh, some experts believe that this is a reason why this is not well implemented. Even cooperative farming is not well implemented. Possibly one reason is we left it entirely to the will of farmers. Okay, uh, so today we say that if cooperative farming is to be brought in, we must go for some institutionalization of it. By institutionalization, I mean, uh, uh, let's say gram panchayats can be uh, encouraging 
cooperative farming rather than leaving it to the farmer center it shouldn't be disaggregated it should be somehow institutionalized even if not legal it should be institutionalized as in it should be uh, at some level like gram panchayat level that cooperative farming should be encouraged okay the other difference between this and consolidation is that in cooperative farming there is no need to shift land ownership consolidation needed land ownership shift but this is not needed in cooperative farming have you noticed it because when farmers farmers pool their land the ownership rights remain same okay keeping the ownership rights same they are pooling their land and cultivating it together okay so due to this feature that there is no need to shift land ownership it is less likely to be resisted by the farmers remember in consolidation farmers have resisted a lot cooperative farming is likely to be resisted less reason being land ownership is not shifted Okay, hope you are following that. Okay, the summary of of all this was to tell you that perhaps in India, cooperative farming may be a better reform than consolidation. Okay, in in our context, cooperative farming can be a better reform than consolidation, and both are leading to similar results. okay so we can encourage more of cooperative farming as i told you by institutionalization of such a concept okay however even for cooperative farming ideally we should solve the problem of lack of conclusive rights lack of conclusive right problem should be solved for both consolidation and for cooperative farming you will say why for cooperative farming ownership is not shifting let me tell you if if the rights are conclusive then farmers would trust each other more while going for voluntarily pooling of their land i repeat if ownership rights are conclusive farmers would trust uh, each other more when they go for pooling of land okay so uh, this is where we say that no matter which reform we are taking up conclusive ownership right problem must be resolved and that is where our modern land reforms are also very important we are done with all the traditional land reforms okay and uh, at least we'll begin with the modern land reforms even if we we conclude that part uh, maybe in the coming years conclusive means legally registered suppose that i buy a land in village and go to the registry office and pay stamp duty get the legal right i have got conclusive rights but that generally doesn't happen among the farmers there is so quick redistribution they don't go to registry office to get it legally registered that that
now we talk about some modern land reforms. Okay, at least uh, we'll begin with a few of them. You can name it in multiple ways. Modern land reforms, post-91 land reforms. And there is another very popular term, market-led land reforms. Okay, in fact, it is this name, market-led land reforms, which gives the best explanation of these land reforms. Let me elaborate on that. What is the meaning of market-led here? Market-led means, here we are talking of development of land market. And what is land market? Land market is mainly about purchase and sale of land. Before 91, purchase and sale of land was not common. Okay, which becomes more common after 91. I'm trying to first differentiate between pre and post 91 land reforms. Pre-91, we are not talking much about purchase and sale. Post-91, we are uh, talking more about it. Why? The reason is because land is now needed for sectors other than agriculture. Okay, land is now needed after 91 for sectors other than agriculture. Like industries, infrastructure. Okay, so let me reword it. The fundamental difference between traditional and modern land reform is traditional reforms talked only about land and agriculture. If you notice all the traditional reform, they talk about land and agriculture, while the modern land reform talks about land as a as a as a resource needed for industries, infrastructure. Agriculture generally comes at the end in the modern land reform. We will not do it, okay? We will uh, again and again bring back the question that what has any modern land reform to do with agriculture? Okay, but I hope the difference is getting clear to begin with. Let's talk about some modern land reforms. Uh, the first two, there are three of them which we do. The first two are much simpler. Simpler, less debatable. So at least we'll, we'll cover that uh, before we end for today. The first one. Modernization of land records. Okay, modernization of land records. Uh, modernization is a subjective term. Okay, it can include many things like a scientific survey of land record is also modernization. However, gradually the word modernization has become synonymous to digitization of land records. Okay, today when we talk of modernization, we often mean digitization of land record. Digitization means shifting from paper land record, which was the case earlier, to digital land record. Okay, when we convert a paper land record into digital, okay, we say that there is digitization of land record. Okay, which is becoming common in many states. I hope you may have heard of it again, if, if somewhere uh, uh, linked to the rural economy. But why is it reform? What is good thing about digitization? 
digitization can be one solution to the problem of lack of conclusive rights. Okay, we are back to conclusive rights problem. Okay, digitization can be one solution to lack of conclusive ownership rights. Right. Simple. Digital records are more permanent than paper records. Okay, you could have guessed that the digital records are more permanent. They cannot be changed easily. They cannot be altered easily. Say by a village official. Hence, gives more conclusive ownership rights. Can you see that when land records are digitized, grabbing will be difficult. Grabbing becomes easier in paper land record that you, you connive with the land revenue official and just uh, uh, make minor change in the map. Okay. Now it is difficult in digital land record and that is why it gives more conclusive ownership right. But how come suddenly after 91 the government wakes up to the problem of conclusive right? Because without that land market cannot function. Okay, have you noticed modern land reform is about land market. Without conclusive rights, how can land market function? Think logically, how can we sell land if the land rights are not legal? Okay, so after 91, agriculture is supposed to sell land to, let's say, infrastructures. For that conclusive right is the minimum that we need. That is where government is very aggressively going for digitization. But fine, we are not complaining that. Because this is a reform which will also benefit agriculture. Okay, nothing much to debate on digitization. Digitization will also benefit agriculture. How can I say that? You can guess many reasons for it. One, if there is conclusive rights, we can revisit some earlier land reforms in agriculture. I was talking about it five minutes ago, like consolidation. Okay, I repeat, if we get conclusive ownership rights, we can revisit some of the earlier land reforms, like consolidation, even cooperative farming. That is why digitization is good for agriculture. Nothing to complain about. Okay, nothing much to complain about uh, the, the digitization reform, except adding a, a note here that before digitization, before digitization, the government must ensure that there is fair land distribution. I am referring to this because this is a problem which we are witnessing actually in India that we are going for digitization without ensuring a fair or valid land. Can you see the problem which it can lead to? If land distribution is unfair, then that unfair land will be digitized and will become permanent. Okay. If the land distribution is unfair, okay. Uh, then this unfair land distribution will only get permanent. It is happening in our country. That is why I am telling you, uh, in some states we are finding that government has employed a number of data entry operators to go for digitizing land records. Now the problem is, these data entry operators are very good at digitizing land records. 
not not a problem there. They have hardly any idea about the land distribution. So that is why uh, many farmers are complaining that digitization is happening, but their land ownership is getting random. Someone who is having 15 hectares of land is getting 10 hectares being digitized and so on. Okay, which is not fair, which is, which is something that should change over time. Okay, and one more, uh, which is somewhat similar, you will see to the first land reform. This is about land leasing. So, we can name the second modern land reform as facilitating land leasing. Under facilitating land leasing, the main step is to go for a compulsory registration of both the land owners and the lease holds. Okay, landowners are clear. Who are these leaseholds? Anyone who is taking land on lease. If we are talking of agriculture, they are synonym to tenants. Remember, leaseholds in agriculture are no one else but the tenants. Okay, let's let's talk about why we are calling it a reform. What will happen if landowners and leaseholds are compulsorily registered? It will benefit both. Landowners will benefit. Because this will also be a solution to lack of conclusive rights. If landowners are legally registered, automatically their land is legally registered. And that solves the problem of lack of conclusive rights. So that is why landowners are happy about it. They are benefiting. Leaseholds are also benefiting. Because they get land for some purpose like cultivation with security of tenants. Now that will remind you of an earlier land reform, the tenancy reform. Looked in this way, this reform is like a modern form of tenancy reform. Have you noticed? Leaseholds or tenants will now get land for cultivation or some other purpose with security of tenure. Security is inbuilt because they are also legally registered. They will enter into a legal lease agreement with the landowner. So I repeat, this is a win-win situation for both. Landowners benefit because they get more conclusive rights. Leaseholds benefit because they get land for some cultivation or other purpose with security of tenure. That is why this reform is also getting implemented in quite good way. And there is again nothing to complain about here because even this reform will, will be benefiting the agricultural sector. So again, no, uh, not much complaint against this one. Okay. We are left with one more reform. Okay. Uh, but I think we'll, we'll do that in the coming class, which is on land activity. Okay. So uh, that's it for today. Thank you. Now land owners are also. Only land owners will not be.